my pleasure to introduce today's guest, Dr. Larry Wood. Lawrence D.H. Wood was born and educated in Canada. He received his medical degree at University of Manitoba and received his Ph.D. from McGill in Montreal. After his postgraduate training in Manitoba, in 1975, he joined the faculty at University of Manitoba. He came to the University of Chicago in 1982 to lead and develop the new section of pulmonary and critical care, setting the foundation for the strong section that it is today. In 1984, the students of the University of Chicago Medical School awarded Dr. Wood with the Outstanding Teacher Award. He won teaching awards for the next 23 consecutive years and many other awards. During his long and distinguished career, Dr. Wood authored 167 articles, edited several textbooks, including all three editions of the benchmark critical care text, Principles of Critical Care. When the American Thoracic Society created the section of critical care, Dr. Wood was elected as the first chair. He has trained over 100 pulmonary and critical care fellows and researchers, most of whom remain active in academic positions, including myself. Dr. Wood was the Dean for Medical Education at the Pritzker School of Medicine at the University of Chicago from 1996 through 2003, and there are two teaching awards named in his honor. Dr. Wood will be discussing the cardiopulmonary management of acute hypoxemic respiratory failure. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Wood. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. So let's let's get started. I, I helped set the stage for me. Let's let's go back. Um, around what time and and when did when did it evolve to have a new way to think about respiratory failure? And and give me some background and give our listeners background as to you know what was going on at the time that that. Uh, the folks in our field started to think of a, of a new way to view respiratory failure, and in particular, hypoxemic respiratory failure. Kyle, when I uh, started on staff uh, for, with my first faculty position in 1975 at the University of Manitoba, it was a very exciting time in and around the ICU, for there was a uh, change in the uh, landscape of the type of patients we were seeing. Um, few years prior to that, the majority of the patients we saw were uh, patients with chronic obstructive pulmonary disease who uh, went into acute on chronic respiratory failure, and a few patients with cardiogenic pulmonary edema made up the majority of our population. Uh, around 1970, uh, the shift occurred with a lot of people showing up with um, what was uh, then called acute hypoxemic respiratory failure based on the uh, observations uh, in 1967 by Tom Petty and his group who described a new type of respiratory failure characterized by uh, sudden bilateral symmetrical lung infiltrates, dyspnea, tachypnea, and hypoxemia, refractory hypoxemia to all but uh, positive end expiratory pressure, and copious endobronchial secretions that looks like plasma. Uh, when I started um, on staff at the uh, uh, intensive care unit in Winnipeg, uh, we had a number of such patients, and together with some of the residents uh, and in conversation, we began to wonder how we could improve the uh, therapy of these patients, and we weren't exactly sure what to do about it, but we knew that there was a bilateral pulmonary edema was the problem, probably as a result of acute lung injury. Um, one of the uh, residents in the conversation said, let's try to treat it like cardiogenic pulmonary edema. The idea caught on quickly because it looked for all intents and purposes like cardiogenic pulmonary edema, except the heart function was pretty normal. Um, when he said treated like cardiogenic pulmonary edema, we thought of diuresis and preload and afterload reduction and positive inotropic agents. Of course, the difference between cardiogenic pulmonary edema and acute hypoxic respiratory failure is that the uh, uh, treatment of cardiogenic pulmonary edema by preload reduction often is associated with an increase in the cardiac output. In our case, we were worried that if we lowered the uh, wedge pressure, pulmonary artery wedge pressure, that we might uh, lower the preload too much for the circulation to maintain an adequate cardiac output, and we'd get end organ failure, which would not do the patient any favor. We would not want to trade pulmonary edema for shock. Right. Uh, so uh, to, to 
before we tried it in too many patients, we uh, developed uh, a search of the literature that revealed some models of acute lung injury. The one we chose was uh, oleic acid intravenously and uh, gave it in controlled circumstances to some anesthetized uh, animals and uh, observed what happened to the uh, acute pulmonary edema as a function of time. And uh, this produced a pretty marked and... Uh, homogeneous uh, uh, pulmonary edema that uh, we then attempted to treat about an hour after we gave the injurious agent uh, by lowering the wedge pressure by just five millimeters of mercury from about 11 to six millimeters of mercury. And the edema shut off. It was just like you closed a, a spigot and it, it uh, stopped uh, accumulating. Uh, and encouraged by this, we looked carefully at what the effect was on the cardiac output, and uh, guess what? Uh, it fell too, uh, to worrisome levels. So we added uh, vasoactive agents uh, at the time. The first one we used was nitroprus sodium nitroprusside, and in later times we used dopamine and dobutamine, all of which were able to maintain a normal cardiac output and protect the patient from end organ failure while the edema uh, was uh, treated quickly. So that's how we got started in the uh, understanding of what was going on. Help me understand, too. So, you know, the, this thought process, as you described, you know, what you were seeing originally in the intensive care unit, you know, acute on chronic uh, respiratory failure and ventilatory failure and or, you know, uh, a high-pressure pulmonary edema, cardiogenic, um, you know, the, the, the evolution uh, of this sort of new, if you will, new form of respiratory failure, I mean, it, it truly didn't just show up out of the blue, it, it, you know, it, what do you think was causing the change? Or let me ask it a different way. What, what, how did we manage these patients in the past? Uh, if someone came in in hypoxic respiratory failure um, and, you know, had refractory hypoxemia, um, but there really wasn't a lot of thought process about PEEP and prior to the idea, you know, as you just quoted, let's treat it like cardiogenic pulmonary edema, you know, what was done? What was considered the general standard of care if there was such a thing? The history, as I understand it from uh, Tom Petty, is that uh, many of these cases were overlooked um, in the sense of having, you know, words matter, and, and it took it took Petty and his group to to put a label on these <clears throat> as uh, actually what they first called it was adult respiratory distress syndrome, right? Because they thought that uh, this was like the uh, neonates born with a surfactant deficiency who developed respiratory distress. Uh, it looked just like that, uh, but in adults. Um, and I think that uh, his opinion uh, was that uh, we were missing some of these patients being treated on the wards with uh, antibiotics as if they were um, uh, pneumonia or um, being treated um, uh, on without intensive care, which, of course, was evolving at the same time as the right. uh, acute hypoxic respiratory failure was evolving. So <clears throat> it's not <clears throat> not clear to any of us exactly what was happening uh, to those patients, but it was uh, clear that once he had uh, just made that description that the light went on in many people's uh, uh, brains uh, to uh, see this is what we're treating, and that began to move them into intensive care units where a different form of therapy, uh, high levels of oxygen and positive end expiratory pressure, to name two, uh, were uh, added to the regime of uh, therapy. Okay. So then let's let's go then um, back to that period where the idea of, hey, let's try to treat it like cardiogenic pulmonary edema. Um, you know, on one level, it seems like a very um, – we're talking about a completely different mechanism here. So it, it seemed uh, – that seemed to be a pretty bold statement for your resident to make, I would imagine, to say – to have someone in non-cardiogenic pulmonary edema to say, yeah, but we're going to treat it like that anyway. Um, you know, I, I wonder if so, if after he said it, he sort of ducked for cover uh, out of fear of the, the uh, potential response to say, you know, well, this is a different different disorder, young man. Um, I, I'm just, it, it seems uh, such a bold statement at the time. Now, 
now I, I, it, it, this is one of the reasons we wanted to do this series because I think, you know, the thought process of how we do these things today, we don't appreciate how, I would almost say, radical of an idea it was at the beginning. Um, and so I'd, I'd love for you to expand a little bit more about that era and then the, the animal work that you and your group and others were doing to, to truly show that, that this was, uh, that you were on to something. Yeah, that, that's a really good question. I, I don't think that there was a cavalier attitude on the part of the residents who were making these suggestions. Uh, hey, let's treat it like pulmonary edema wasn't just a let's, let's try something. Right. Rather, it was the start of a conversation about a possible mechanism that led to a good search of the literature at the laboratories of um, Aubrey Taylor and Norman Staub had been doing some extraordinary work on um, the um, pathophysiology of pulmonary edema and had laid the groundwork for what uh, a pulmonary capillary leak uh, like this acute lung injury would look like. Uh, so when we all steeped ourselves in their literature to find out what <clears throat> they thought was happening, it raised the possibility that lowering the uh, pulmonary vascular pressure the pul as estimated by the wedge pressure clinically would be um, uh, could have a very large effect because the vessels had such a high conductance to liquid uh, that just lowering the pressure a little bit would lower the edema flow a lot and uh, so that was that was the start of the of the uh, conversations that led to the design of a study that would look at that. In that same study, the, the resident who did it, that was Richard Pruitt. He went on to be a, a head of a section of uh, cardiology in Winnipeg. Um, he he um, helped uh, make the design, and then, and then he did the experiments that uh, looked at uh, not just lowering the wedge pressure, but the other factor that might play a uh, part in pulmonary edema is the colored osmotic pressure. And uh, he treated one group with uh, albumin to raise the colored osmotic pressure while keeping the wedge pressure constant and found uh, no effect on the pulmonary edema, which is just what uh, Aubrey Taylor would expect if, right. the, um, if the vessels was, were leaking protein just as much as they were leaking liquid, then right. there would be no oncotic pressure to pull the liquid back in. Uh, and actually, there was another thing that was important to look at there. So much of the eff effective therapy was positive end expiratory pressure, and that was new, and we didn't actually understand it. And like a lot of new things, there, there were a lot of possibilities. Uh, it seemed like uh, PEEP dropped the cardiac output. Well, this is not a good thing if you're going to lower the wedge pressure anyway and right. drop the cardiac output too. It looked like PEEP might make the edema worse and uh, at the same time make the uh, oxygen exchange better. Um, so and Dr. Pruitt added uh, groups uh, into this experimental design that had a look at positive end expiratory pressure after the injury w occurred and was able to show that no, it didn't, PEEP did not affect the um, edema flow, so you could use PEEP um, with impunity, as it were, to, to get its beneficial effects. And that articulation was what led to one of the um, guidelines for uh, treatment of acute hypoxic respiratory failure as we saw it, which was since PEEP didn't make the edema worse but did drop the cardiac output, use the least amount of it that would achieve the um, endpoints of therapy that you were after. And when we thought about it, we defined the endpoints of PEEP therapy in AHRF as um, to provide 90% saturation of an adequate circulating hemoglobin on a non-toxic FiO2. So there was the second guideline. That you know, The first was seek the lowest wedge pressure that will give you an adequate cardiac output and use vasoactive drugs if you don't have an adequate cardiac output. The second was uh, use the least PEEP that will give you 90% saturation of an adequate circulating hemoglobin on a non-toxic FiO2. And that once we had that PEEP on, we uh, sort of became conscious that if the lungs were filled with liquid, that 
there wasn't much place, space, airspace for the normal tidal volume to go. So maybe we better cut the tidal volume, and we started using uh, about six milliliters per kilogram uh, to decrease the tidal volume that these patients were receiving so that we didn't cause further injury to the air spaces that weren't flooded by over-distending them. And uh, that we articulated as let's uh, use the least tidal volume that will protect us, protect the patient from uh, a severe acidosis. So let let me ask you about uh, we're gonna, there's there's so many different things to expand on that. I'm just um, I want to keep trying to set the stage of of where things are and, and evolution um, to 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 where we are today. The idea of using the lower tidal volumes, as you were describing these you know these animal experiments and also your your clinical experiences, um, you know you were seeing that uh, because of the lung injury and the degree of edema, et cetera, that uh, as you described it, there was a only a smaller percentage of, of healthy lung that was going to be, for lack of a better word, bearing the brunt of a, a large tidal volume. So you started dialing that down. Tell me roughly when that started to occur. When were you uh, contemplating that in both animal studies, doing it in animal studies, you and others, um, and um, then even actually starting to do it in clinical practice? We uh, were quick to start that intervention. Uh, we had started our experimental studies in about 1975, and uh, during the next two, three years, we did a lot of experiments with uh, canine uh, acute lung injury and made the observations uh, that sort of filled our data sheets with the fact that as the edema accumulated in the lung, the pressure in the ventilator, uh, the pressure of a fixed volume cycle ventilator uh, progressively went up. And uh, by the end of the experiment, five hours later when the edema was pretty severe, the pressures in on the ventilator had gone up threefold. Wow. And uh, we thought, oh, that's why the patients are having this uh, high pressure on the ventilator. Maybe we better protect their uh, non-flooded lung by dropping the tidal volume. And uh, so, you know, wh what are the criteria for a normal tidal volume in a patient who's ventilated? If, if the patient has normal lung function, it was found uh, quite a number of years ago by uh, Pontopidin that uh, the normal tidal volume is about 12 milliliters per kilogram. Um, how he got that is interesting in the context of what we're moving to here. The, he and his anesthesiology colleagues made a habit of asking their patients when they were being ventilated, are you getting enough air? And they found that uh, if they dialed up the tidal volume from 500 milliliters to 1 liter to 1.5 liters on the way up, uh, they weren't getting enough air and said, that's not comfortable. But uh, above uh, 12 milliliters per kilogram, they were getting enough air, and that's what, that's what set, the, uh, set the standard. Many of the, those, the inputs of those data came from patients with uh, COPD and acute on chronic respiratory failure or patients with polio um, with neuromuscular disease that caused them not to be able to breathe. And it wasn't clear whether they, the, their perception of uh, comfort uh, on 12 milliliters per kilogram could be extrapolated to uh, our patients. So we right. repeated that. We, right, as I say, so markedly different because, of course, these were not lung injury patients, as, as we've been it. talking about. Right. That's it. So, so when we had lung injury patients, we asked them. Before they were deeply sedated and while we were talking to them, we would uh, adjust their tidal volume and ask if they were getting enough air. And invariably, around 6 milliliters per kilogram in the patients with acute hypoxic respiratory failure, they began to complain of not getting enough air. Uh, so that was uh, the – you asked the question, when did we start doing that? Oh, it was probably about 1978 
when as a uh, standard in our unit in Winnipeg, we started uh, treating our patients with uh, around six milliliters per kilogram uh, or dialed down from the standard uh, 12 milliliters per kilogram to something lower so that their ventilator pressures would be much less. And we reasoned that that would cause less injury to the air spaces that weren't flooded. And then you were, you and others then were able to also try to replicate that in, obviously in animal models and, and start to be able to show that the lower volumes indeed were not leading to the same degree of, of um, lung injury and other concerns uh, that we were seeing with the higher volumes. Uh, Kyle, there was a lot of um, lot of studies that went into that uh, conclusion that you just said. Uh, right. Gattinoni and his group uh, did a lot of um, radiologic assessments of uh, the recruitment of air spaces with uh, with PEEP and tidal volume, and uh, and uh, we and others had a look at the pressure volume curves of the lung or the lung and chest wall as the edema progressed, and uh, observed that one of the big things about those pressure volume curves was there's a large hysteresis a large difference in the uh, inspired um, pressure volume curve of the lung compared to the expired pressure volume curve of the lung. And that hysteresis accounted for the fact that small levels of positive and expiratory pressure could achieve a large recruitment of air spaces and a large reduction in shunt uh, by uh, using the pressure volume hysteresis. Uh, what, What that uh, means is that uh, when we put positive end expiratory pressure on our patients, we usually started from a high level of PEEP and worked it down toward the level that we wanted uh, the patient to be on over a short period of time. We were able to demonstrate in animal models that the uh, that taking advantage of the pressure volume hysteresis gave us a lot more recruitment and a lot more reduction in shunt when we applied it from uh, uh, TLC, if you like, from high lung volumes uh, compared to applying it from FRC, low lung volumes. Okay. Um, I just, I find it just, I I just find it fascinating that, um, you know, if we take it, advance ourselves up to the year 2000 with the publication of the ARDSNET trial and the low tidal volumes showing decreasing mortality and uh, decreased time on the ventilator, et cetera, just that centers um, that were uh, steeped, if you will, in physiology and, and, and animal physiology and pathophysiology had already started to do some reasoning of the rationale for lower tidal volumes. And... Um, you know, this, I guess what you just described and, and just this one small you know, kind of portion of this history and the work that went into that field, to me, really oh, uh, further reinforced, I think, the need uh, for these kind of discussions because the, you know, at a teaching hospital, we're frequently trying to, again, um, spend time with our, uh, with our trainees to say, you know, when you don't have a study in front of you, Go back to physiology and go back to uh, you know how you know things work and 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 try to do some reasoning from there and I think you you hit on another very important point that I, that I want you to now expand on when we talk about you know other ways to to achieve these outcomes and that is it was active titration it wasn't you made ventilator settings walked off and went and wrote a note for an hour, maybe grabbed a coffee, came back to see what was going on, but that it was an active, titratable management of the patient to the goals that you were seeking and using the patient's feedback, whether that was from a ventilator or any other form of a monitor, to know when you'd achieved your goals. Yeah, those are very uh, uh, appropriate comments. The um, way that... uh I see it, and the way I would play back to you what you said is that uh, critical thinking is really important in critical care, and that uh, in order to think critically, it's important to have good data input, which means a very good understanding of the pathophysiology. Um, it, it was easier then when I was time I was talking about than it is now, I think, for trainees in critical care 
because the trainees in critical care currently are um, filled with the important um, advances in cell and molecular biology that um, don't have easy applications yet to the practice of critical care and the handling of patients so that there isn't as much time in their uh, taking in of data uh, to think about um, pressure volume curves of the lung, volume pressure curves of the heart, um, the uh, starling curve of edema flow, and what you do with it when you manipulate each of the factors in it. Uh, I think that uh, that um, circumstance, circumstances has made it even more important to spend some time in the training of uh, intensivists for them to uh, steep themselves in what is classically known, what is known about the physiology and pathophysiology of the various common uh, disorders that they uh, deal with. So in the case of acute hypoxic respiratory failure, uh, yes, uh, there was a lot of titration against the endpoints that uh, you wanted. Well, wait now, what endpoints do you want for uh, positive end expiratory pressure in a patient with acute hypoxic respiratory failure? Um, that takes just a little bit of thinking. It's not rocket science, but you, you have to think a little bit about what, why are you using the PEEP? And the truth was, when Tom Petty and his group invented it, as it were, they were, they were responding to some extraordinary results in their patients. Tom Petty tells this great story of how it started. They had an expiratory retard on the ventilator, and they didn't know what that valve was for. So it was on a, it was on a patient with a, a acute hypoxic respiratory failure, and uh, he said, uh, tell me what happens. And he cranked in the expiratory retard, which, of course, gives a, a bigger end expiratory lung volume and is effectively PEEP. Right. Uh, and the, his colleague said, the patient just pinked up. <laughs> he said, well, well, watch this. And he turned it down, and uh, the expiratory retard down, so the PEEP went down. She's blue again. And uh, so that's how they... <laughs> That's so how they came to understand that one of the endpoints they were after was the saturation of the hemoglobin, which was, of course, very important to the patient's survival. And uh, that's, that's how uh, they got focused on that goal of uh, positive end expiratory pressure, that which gives 90% saturation. Why 90%? Well, the physiology says that if you go above 90% saturation, you don't get much more oxygen on the flat part of the oxyhemoglobin right. dissociation curve. But if you go below 90%, you're on the steep part and you lose saturation a lot. So aim for 90%. Uh, well, more than PEEP influences that. FiO2 influences that. FiO2, let's see, there's a lot of talk about oxygen toxicity. Most of the evidence, as you search through it, says that um, less than 60% FiO2 doesn't cause much oxygen toxicity. So let that be an endpoint. So 90% saturation of an adequate circulating hemoglobin on a non-toxic FiO2 less than 60%. What's this adequate circulating hemoglobin? Well, uh, though there's a bit of controversy and discussion about that, it is clear that if you're talking about affecting oxygen delivery, uh, the higher the hemoglobin concentration, the um, the more delivery. It is also clear that if you take a, a hemoglobin concentration much above 60%, uh, you get sluggish uh, uh, flow in the small vessels, and you don't want to do that. But if you go much below 30% uh, hematocrit, uh, you end up with... Um, inadequate delivery of oxygen, even if you're adequately saturated. So that's why we said uh, the least PEEP that will give you 90% saturation of an adequate circulating hemoglobin uh, on a non-toxic FiO2 where adequate circulating hemoglobin was uh, thought to be at least 10, usually 12 is what we aim for. And the last thing I want to say about that is uh, the least, why the least PEEP? And uh, oof, there we, we said, uh, like a lot of 
things in our philosophy of critical care, the least intervention away from the natural is going to cause the least harm. And we had to find that uh, PEEP um, did not increase the pulmonary edema, but did drop the cardiac output. We went about to study how it did that, and we found that it actually caused a diastolic filling defect uh, when the PEEP was uh, too high. So why not uh, use as low amount of it as would achieve 90% saturation, and that would uh, diminish the uh, complications. And we've kind of applied that to many criteria in the intensive care unit that uh, the as you as you apply an intervention in increasing amounts, you get increasing benefit, but frequently you'll hit a point where the benefit starts to fall off or even uh, you introduce uh, injurious effects. And that uh, idea of using the least is a good uh, thing, I think, especially in a discipline that comes from resuscitation mentality where in order to resuscitate the essentially dead patient, you need to do everything in the book to see if you can make the patient better. But we then say once the patient's better, withdraw those interventions as rapidly as you put them on. And that frequently isn't the case when you think of uh, adding binotropic agents to septic shock, for example. Uh, you can get up to pretty large doses of multiple inotropes, which can be weaned, which means take them down slowly. Uh, every six hours, drop the uh, infusion of uh, dopamine by one microgram per kilogram per minute or it can be dropped rapidly, which is every 15 minutes, cut the dose in half. And if the end point, your blood pressure, uh, uh, doesn't fall, then keep going until it does. That way you can uh, liberate the patient from the uh, uh, agent, uh, in this case dopamine, um, very rapidly instead of over two, three days when side effects come in. Another excellent point. I, um, <clears throat> I'd like to expand on something that you and I have talked about in the past, and, um, and, and you've mentioned now a couple of times when you've talked about the wedge pressure and the goal then of you know, going back to the statement of let's try to treat it like cardiogenic pulmonary edema. And you said we'll, we'll do something even relatively simple, take the wedge from you know, 11 to 6 um, in the sense of a thought process, but we may uh, have some issues there um, with, cardi uh, with cardiac output, so we will try to support it with inotropic support, et cetera. But the key point you made there, of course, was that you used the wedge pressure, so you had a PA catheter. And there's obviously been a, for lack of a better word, a cultural shift in critical care thinking about that particular instrument. And, I, and, and some things you've said about it in the past, to me, I, I'd like you to, to be able to expand upon for our listeners. Um, and it's, it's, if people listen closely, it's, it's a, almost a philosophical difference on how to view and how, and how to use um, the invasive monitoring instruments that are you know, part of our um, equipment that we use in the critical care unit. Well, Cal, the way I think about the... Uh, uh, indwelling central catheter is that it is a noxious agent that's going to cause problems and you ought not to use it unless you think that it can provide an answer to a question that you can't get otherwise. And if you have a questioning approach to the results of a Swan-Gans catheterization, then it may be that the uh, information you gain outweighs the compl complications of uh, putting the catheter in. Now, how I see that in most cases is that, uh, in most cases in, our, in the care of uh, my patients, is that uh, when the Swan-Gans catheter goes in, the initial measurement is the start of the procedure, not the end of the procedure. And uh, as soon as those initial measurements, for example, of wedge pressure and cardiac output are obtained, then an intervention needs to go on. 
and uh, in the context of treating acute hypoxic respiratory failure, it's a uh, reduction in the circulating volume that lowers the wedge pressure, and what does that do to the cardiac output for this patient is what I want to know. And so uh, here comes some furosemide, or here comes some uh, nitroglycerin to redistribute the blood into the unstressed volume of the veins. Wedge pressure drops by 5 millimeters of mercury, and the cardiac output goes from uh, 5.5 liters per minute to 5 liters per minute. And uh, the mixed venous O2 gained in the same set of measurements does not uh, change much. It sits around uh, 37 millimeters of mercury. And uh, so I've just learned that I can uh, provide this patient with the benefit of a lowered wedge pressure without compromising his cardiac output, at least within that uh, framework of uh, data. And I can then proceed, push that a little bit further if I want. That questioning approach to the use of a Swan-Ganz catheter is not the approach where the major studies um, of Swan-Ganz catheter use uh, were, were being, that's not the way they were being used uh, when it was found that Swan-Ganz catheters weren't helpful to the care of patients and actually caused complications. And the conclusion of that has been sort of Swan-Ganz catheters are anathema. Uh, uh, don't, don't even think about it uh, because of all the complexities they cause. But I'd like to put forward to the, the folks listening that the notion uh, is when they were tested for their utility in terms of enhancing survivorship or decreasing morbidity, they were not using the rationale that I just outlined in the patient that we were talking about. Uh, they were placing the Swan-Ganz catheter as a monitor. And I've taken the point of view that monitoring is like if you monitor the electrocardiogram if uh, an attack of ventricular fibrillation occurs, the alarm goes off. That's a monitor. It has an alarm that can call the physician's attention to the patient. With the Swan-Ganz catheter, there is no alarm but in the physician's intellect. Uh, the alarm that would go off is if the uh, wedge pressure, which was uh, 10, fell to 5, and the cardiac output, which was five, fell to two, uh, and the blood pressure fell, that is an alarm that the resident or the physician needs to know about because it tells you the patient has suddenly become hypovolemic and needs volume to fix their hypo, uh, hypotension. That's when you don't use a Swan-Ganz catheter that way, when you just use it as a monitor, then it is no surprise to me that a careful study of multiple patients with Swan-Ganz catheters in versus CVP versus nothing reveals more complications from the more invasive procedure, and that's what the study showed, and that's what scares people from, from um, using the Swan-Ganz catheters. And I think that's just fine if they're going to use the Swan-Ganz catheter as a monitor because it gives no information anyway. But if you want to use it as a questioning instrument, an instrument to answer questions, then it would be my belief or it would be my hypothesis that a proper study of the use of a Swan-Ganz catheter would be one that is uh, evaluating its effect on morbidity and mortality when it is used to answer specific questions. For example, in acute hypoxic respiratory failure, does lowering the wedge pressure, is lowering the wedge pressure associated with a untoward drop in cardiac output, and can that be fixed with uh, vasoactive drugs? It was our surprising finding when we, when we started using the Swan-Ganz catheter, and the people that I work with were using this questioning approach, that we could invariably take almost all of our patients with acute hypoxic respiratory failure, measure a wedge pressure which on average was 14, lower the wedge pressure with various ways of reducing the circulating volume uh, by half to seven millimeters of mercury and not drop the cardiac output into the range where you would worry about uh, um, 
oxygen delivery to the peripheral tissues or any organ system dysfunction. Right, that you weren't was, creating uh, you weren't creating shock. That would obviously be unacceptable. That's right. That's right. And <laughs> and and so that opened our eyes to the fact that we we don't have to be so frightened of the hypoperfusion of organs. We just have to look for it. Okay. And most often you don't see it and when you do see it then it's good that you know it early so that the the uh hemod- the use of a catheter in a questioning manner uh requires frequent titration against the endpoints that you have and just as soon as you've got it yourself satisfied that you've got the information to achieve those endpoints pull it and that comes back to the and that comes back to what you and I were talking about earlier, active titration and active, you know, set out your goal and titrate and achieve that goal. And, and of course, you know, we can go – this is not a debate of whether or not there may be better surrogates than a PA catheter to answer the questions. As you just said, I want it – you know, like you just said, I want it to be more of a, a philosophical approach to – how these instruments should be used, no matter what they are, whether this would be, um, you know, just a central venous pressure monitoring catheter, whether this would be a a bedside almost continuous echocardiography, you know, take your pick. It's an issue of, you know, do they, is there a question being asked, then is data being uh, given, and then a management is being immediately taken, uh, being implemented because of that data. And that's a philosophical difference than I put a catheter in and I'm just monitoring. I think it is the difference between care and intensive care. And I think there's all grades of intensive care, but unless unless you're doing the continual questioning of uh, every um, examination that you do, including your physical examination and your history of, of uh, patients with critical illness, unless you're, unless you're doing those on a continuous questioning basis, then you're not really practicing critical care. You're, you're providing a high-cost facility for very ill pay people to find their natural course uh, without as many interventions as they should have. That may not be. Uh, let me be clear. I'm not. I'm not uh, criticizing critical care. I'm saying that if um, a questioning instrument is used once every 24 hours. It's being underutilized when it could be being used once every half hour. I think that's a good way to put it. Um, Dr. Wood, I'd love to have then um, your opinion about um, some some more, um, I guess, modern studies that have uh, looked at in larger controlled human trials uh, to sort of validate uh, the physiologic-based approach that you and others were developing during this time as, as, we were, uh, as we've talked about. And in particular, um, if we could talk about um, conservative versus liberal uh, fluid status uh, or volume status, um, and in particular, um, uh, conservative fluid management and, and the effects that we saw from the 2006 uh, clinical trial published in the New England Journal. And, and then also, um, I want you to expand on that, given, as you described in animal experiments, that if you had very rapid, uh, within an hour of the injury uh, interventions, that you could almost, you know, shut the edema off, I believe was the word you used, um, and uh, to further highlight, uh, you know, more rapid earlier interventions. And if we take a look at human data and see the benefit that we've gotten from these trials, but notice the delay from, you know, time of injury to the implementation of these philosophies and protocols and principles, um, making a push to say nowadays, you know, we need to be even even quicker because we know historically from animal studies that we can make massive changes rapidly and start to, um, one would argue, you know, when you put it into people, um, see even better outcomes than we're already seeing. Well, that's a, um, a great question. Uh, the, the study you're referring to on the conservative versus um, liberal fluid management that was in the New England Journal in uh, 2006 uh, was an extraordinary study. It was, it was well done. It was 
the kind of attention to detail that the, those investigators used was was just wonderful. Um, and they nearly missed it. What I mean by that is by being very careful to control all variables uh, in all patients, they ended up where the average intervention of uh, using either conservative or liberal fluid management was 43 hours after the patient was admitted to the uh, intensive care unit. Now, if I wanted to to to, to make uh, uh, support for a therapy, uh, and specifically about fluid management in AR in uh, acute hypoxic respiratory failure. I would make my intervention very much earlier than that. If I wanted to miss it, uh, I would make it later than that because it seemed to us from all the animal studies that we did that most of the effect or the strongest effect was close to the acute lung injury. I told you earlier in this conversation that when we dropped the wedge pressure in the animals an hour after they had received the injury, and that injury we were talking about was oleic acid intravenously, but we did it also in, in inhalation injuries with hydrochloric acid right. or, or kerosene. All of them had the same response. Early on, you could shut off the leak by dropping the wedge pressure a bit. Well, 43 hours after the injury had occurred, it may well be that during those 43 hours, the tank is filled. The lungs are now filled, all their capacitance areas, the peribronchovascular bundles and the alveoli, are flooded. And you can't get that out as easily as if you can just shut off the, um, the influx of pulmonary edema. So that's my concern about that study in uh, 2006. They were able to show uh, decreased ventilator time, I think, in... Uh, in uh, Five days. Yeah, five days after the therapy started, some 55 more patients with conservative therapy um, got off the ventilator in five days than uh, with uh, uh, liberal uh, management, fluid management. And that, um, that distinction seems like a pretty small uh, effect. It's real. And uh, I was delighted to see it because, uh, I, of course, I, 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 I'm on the record of having predicted that that's going to happen. <laughs> but but uh, and, and they also showed decreased ICU time. That was, that was good. But I just worry that applying the principles of the scientific method, uh, utilizing uh, good controls, caused that study to not improve the intervention they were interested in for 43 hours, and that's uh, after the action is uh, occurred. So that's what I uh, worry about. So your prediction then, if, if I was going to have you lay down odds, would be that if this intervention, as you had demonstrated in your animal models, if we were um, quicker to um, applying these principles and all the other things that we've talked about, and active management and active titration and achieving our um, goals from a perspective of um, fluid, from a fluid management perspective, that we would have probably, and they would have probably demonstrated an even more robust effect uh, of, of, from their intervention because they would have been obviously catching people much earlier in the process, um, as, as you just outlined. That's what I think, and that, of course, would be my hypothesis for another massive multi uh, center uh, study that would uh, do a, um, a better job of getting started early. But but I'm also cognizant of the fact that uh, in this management of fluids, one thing I've overlooked in mentioning to you is that um, sepsis is a pretty common cause of acute hypoxic respiratory failure. Right. And when septic hemodynamics uh, are a part of the hemodynamic picture, you you start with a very large fluid deficit, right? And uh, to try and reduce the wedge pressure to reduce the pulmonary edema when you've got a large fluid deficit is not a good starting place. 
you've got to get the fluids, you've got to get the hemodynamics under control uh, with whatever wedge pressure and fluid infusion it takes before you can invoke uh, therapies of lowering the wedge pressure further. That doesn't mean don't do it. it in all of our patients who are septic with AHRF, we were able to do it in terms of um, rapidly getting them out of uh, the septic shock hemodynamics and then um, treating their uh, pulmonary edema. But that's a real challenge, and that was one of the things that um, delayed the onset of fluid management in this study because there were something like 40% or more uh, of their patients had septic hemodynamics on admission. Well, I think that that further reinforces the the points that you made at the very beginning about the principle of how we were going to treat hypoxemic respiratory failure, which was we're going to minimize or minimize the the or reduce the wedge as much as possible, but not, and but then at the same time compensate for any loss of cardiac output. And as you just highlighted, you know when when you're in a you're in a perspective of a septic physiology that has also led to a hypoxic respiratory failure, you're dealing with end-organ hypoperfusions, and that's the, the one thing we're not going to allow. Uh, it's the, you know, as in our discussions, and hypoxic respiratory failure, it was we're going to keep trying to lower the wedge but not allow end-organ hypoperfusion. That's the idea. The... Yeah, that's, <laughs> it's always good to have a goal, right? <laughs> well, well, and... And it's good. It's good for conversation to to get the goal straight uh, for all the folks that are listening. Um, it's not easy to to apply each of these goals uh, and avoid the complications of each of the interventions. Um, I, I I think that it's uh, a changed scene in terms of uh, house staff availability to effect the kind of critical care we've been talking about uh, yeah. in this day and age of uh, being careful about not having too many shifts run into each other. That wasn't the case in 1975. <laughs> uh, the, the, uh, I think the question then was, um, can we avoid uh, every other night call? <laughs> A uh, discontinuous call. <laughs> so it's, it's a different question now, and that, that, by the way, provided more continuity of care. Uh, if it uh, hurt many of our residents as they uh, grew up without sleep. Yeah, um, we're running out on time, so I wanted to be able to give um, uh, you and I had talked about. Um, uh, sort of a, a concluding uh, idea and, and um, some some steps that you would advocate from a perspective of uh, okay tomorrow morning I'm I'm walking into my intensive care unit and I've got someone who's presenting right there in front of me with hypoxic respiratory failure what do I do <laughs> and so I'm I'm wondering if you could outline for our listeners a um, I guess at a minimum, maybe a a starting point. You know, begin begin this way, and then do as we've talked about, as, as always has been done. Titrate, ask your questions, modify from the starting point um, based on what you're seeing um, uh, when you're interacting with your patient. I think that's a very important uh, takeaway lesson for anybody, uh, because the thing, the issues that we've been talking about can get complicated in the midst of having many other patients to look at after and many other things to learn. Uh, so that when one sees uh, a patient with acute hypoxic respiratory failure for the first time, there's such a set of uh, cardiopulmonary interactions that underlie the, uh, the way to go that, that, that well, here's, a, here's an approach. So okay. You've got, you've got the diagnosis. You explain to the patient what's going on. You tell them that you're going to treat their pain and dyspnea with some sedation, and you may even have to muscle relax them so that they know clearly what's going on for uh, the next short while, six hours, uh, 12 hours. You intubate and ventilate with a small tidal volume, six milliliters per kilogram, and a respiratory rate of 24 breaths per minute, and FiO2 of one. Uh, set the PEEP at 10. 
uh, and uh, measure and display for the following interventions, the saturation by an oximeter and the blood pressure um, and trace. Um, get one arterial blood gas to rule out any severe acidosis and go to step two. Increase the PEEP in five centimeter intervals from 15 to 20 to 25. If the blood pressure or the pulse pressure falls, return to the prior PEEP and start a vasoactive drug because you've demonstrated that they're too hypovolemic to stand a higher PEEP. If the blood pressure and pulse pressure uh, normalize, uh, then uh, continue the increases in PEEP. And what you're looking for is 90% uh, saturation of uh, what you're learning simultaneously is, is uh, their hemoglobin concentration on a non-toxic FiO2, well, they're on 100%, so it's already toxic. You've got some room to go. Now, when, when you've shown the least PEEP that we give that endpoint, start dropping the FiO2. And uh, if the FiO2 uh, was uh, 100% and the... Uh, uh, arterial saturation was 100%, uh, go to 80, go to 60, there, you're, you're there. Uh, you've got uh, non-toxic FiO2, they're fully saturated. Oh, but just a minute, the PEEP might be more than you need. Uh, now that you're at 60%, if there's any room to move on the saturation, if it's, if it, that is, if it's not below 90%, then drop the uh, PEEP in uh, decrements. Uh, I choose small decrements at this point. This is all within the first hour of seeing the patient of two centimeters of water and follow the saturation. If the saturation isn't changing, then you can follow those two centimeter water decrements from 20 where you might have been down to 16, 14, 12, then eight. And uh, then if the saturation begins to fall off below uh, or down to 60%, you know that you've arrived at the right FiO2, 50%, the right PEEP, 8 centimeters of water uh, uh, for the next little while. And you turn to the third step, now that that settings on the ventilator are, are, are stabilized, the third is to uh, measure the wedge pressure and the cardiac output and make an intervention to drop the wedge pressure without dropping the cardiac output. That's how I try to encourage our uh, fellows to get the patient most rapidly stabilized when they present with a more, present moribund, really. If you didn't see them, they, they would die uh, to uh, get them stabilized. Perfect. Um, you know, and, and, and to just to reiterate, it's the, this is a, a starting point, a, a nice way to begin. Where, where you're, but you're constantly questioning and monitor, not monitoring, but asking a question using your device to get an answer back, whatever instrument you're using, to achieve the same goals that we've always talked about. Um, that you know, I've outlined things uh, from pretty much the time when uh, there was a discussion of a new type of respiratory failure to seek the least. Uh, wedge pressure that we talked about with an adequate cardiac output. Seek the uh, least PEEP, but don't be afraid to use it. Seek the least tidal volume uh, as possible. Um, and that these large, you know, kind of principles of, of intervention uh, that had been uh, steeped in, in basic uh, experiments of physiology have been borne out over time through landmark clinical trials to say that these principles do make a difference in the management of acute hypoxic respiratory failure. That's a nice summary. Thank you. Is there any other thing you'd like to add, Dr. Wood, before we close? Uh, we've had a rich discussion of, uh, of this. I, I guess I would just add that um, the most important thing we did was uh, describe titrated care in acute hypoxemic respiratory failure. And uh, one of the titrations is when you take all of these principles and go and apply them and the patient isn't getting better, that you rethink it because the next titration is a, is a new thought about what's going on and, uh, and uh, we have to be continually re questioning our own evaluation, our own differential diagnostic approach and therapy um, in acute hypoxic respiratory failure as in all uh, critical illnesses. So I think 
that's the only thing I would say. Oh, I would add one more thing is, is that when you steep yourself in pathophysiologic principles, you can provide um, an, intu an, an intuition that helps you, helps guide you through some of the things that are unknown. Uh, what am I thinking? Albert Einstein said, the intuitive mind is a sacred gift. The rational mind is a faithful servant. We <laughs> honor the servant, that is, by following carefully the uh, rational features that serve us in critical care, but we've forgotten the gift. And the gift is frequently that some choices uh, can arise out of your understanding as intuition. And uh, that's an important thing to remember, too. What a fantastic way to close the discussion. Uh, thanks so much, Dr. Wood. I, this was fantastic. Uh, I, I, if our listeners enjoyed it, even a fraction of the amount that I did, uh, then this uh, was a, a resounding success as far as I'm concerned. So thank you so much. Thank you, Kyle. It was a pleasure talking to you. I appreciate it.